Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us for another edition of Hold My Dream, where we navigate the news and politics with a chaser of civility. I'm your host, Jen, inviting you to grab your favorite beverage, sit back, and imagine with us how to create a new American identity together. Welcome to this week's Hold My Drink and Counterweight podcast with my co-host, David Bernstein, and three new co-hosts that we are going to introduce for this podcast. We have got Andrew A.T., aspiring thinker, and we've got Jeff Fullington and Neil Barnes. So before we introduce them, we have to introduce our drinks. David, what did you bring to the table? I brought another scotch, which is quite early in the day for me, but uh, we'll end the day early. Yeah, it is early in the day for you. <laughs> Cheers to you. <laughs> Andrew, what about you? Um, I've got some Optimum Nutrition. It's like a caffeine powder. It's um, it's like a, a weak version of pre-workout, so I won't be sweating uncontrollably. Uh, yeah, that was going to be my question, because you like start jumping off the screen there. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then... Jeff, I um I have a little bit of my roommate's homemade blackberry wine, which is the best in the world. That's awesome. And um, Crown just put out a new apple flavored Crown, so I'm gonna try it for the first time today. It smells so good. Ah, I'm jealous. All right, Neil, what about you? You're 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 London time. You're in the UK, mm. so you can legit drink. Yeah, but I'm not. <laughs> I'm drinking. Uh, monkey picked oolong tea from south china um because it will keep me awake and sharp through this uh, alcohol at this point would just put me to sleep <laughs> well I, I like i like how jeff he's the earliest one in a time zone but he's from new orleans so you know 10 o'clock 10 a.m is- yeah i think in new orleans it's even legit earlier so oh yeah they drink yeah, for breakfast yeah exactly when i'm yeah. when i'm there it starts with a bloody mary so so, okay, so we are, we're expanding our crew of heterodox thinkers. So the purpose of this is just to give a little introduction and then just, just kind of chat about like why we're even here in the first place. So it's a little bit of a different show for us today, but wanted to introduce you to, to the new crew and cast and whatever else. So Andrew A.T., you want to take it away? Sure. Um, so my name is Andrew. I uh, I was a human intelligence collector in the army for about six years, um, and Jen introduced me as heterodox. Um, personally, I don't I don't think about myself in that way. Um, I am um, I, I've been right wing my whole life, fluctuating between libertarian and conservative. Um, but one of the things I've been trying to do over the past five years or so um, is try to be less committed to talking points and to focus on really thinking for myself. Um, and not, not looking at every issue, how can, uh, you know, how can I score points for my team? How can I really, you know, own the libs quote unquote. Um, and, uh, and one of the things that's really pushed me to like, have to be good at it is that I actually married a liberal, you know, somebody who who voted for Obama. So, um, it's, uh, it's a different experience for both of us. And, um, but at the same time, I think it's really been good for, uh, for our growth um and in a way it sort of makes some of the stuff like when we talk about the discourse we talk with about our ability for the the right and left to get along and communicate it's kind of personal for me i've I've got skin in the game if i don't you know if if 
if my wife and I can't make it work, then there's, you know, what does that mean for the whole country and, and vice versa. So that, that's kind of how I, how I uh, look at things. And, um, and it, and it's shaped my views a little bit helped. So maybe I'm not heterodox, but I'm, I'm still trying my best to think for myself. And that's the whole idea behind my brand, the, the aspiring thinkers thing. Um, Cause I don't feel like I'm all the way there, but I'm trying my best to, to lead by, by example and think for myself as, as best I can. I think like in conversation, since we all have so many different views, you'll be, you'll become heterodox, whether you want to or not. You and David, David can be the, the liberal and can. <laughs> I think he's heterodox. <clears throat> I think he's heterodox. I'm heterodox. Yeah. I'm heterodox. I mean, I would describe myself that I'm probably, you know, you know, you take these various tests um, that like the w League of Women Voters give you, right, about policy mm -hmm. issues. There, I line up as sort of a central left person. I'm I'm pretty democratic in that way. That said, I've always had sort of neoconservative views on American foreign policy. I've always believed America was a force for good in the world, and I want to see America project power in the world. Um, and I've always believed that uh, we should have a free exchange of ideas. I've always been a classical liberal in that way. So when the left began to become more liberal and embrace woke ideology, to me that, uh, you know, I'd much rather work with somebody who's on the right, who agrees with me about classical liberal values than I would with somebody who agrees with me on policy issues. So that's where I am. And I guess heterodox would be a pretty apt description in that way. Jeff, what about you? So we've already introduced yourself, but like now that we've already touched on <laughs> politics, feel free to go there. Me? Yeah. Oh, um, well, Neil and I met through CTA, Critical Therapy Antidote. It was set up to address wokeness in the mental health field, which we're both in. And through that, we discovered that the little group we were forming shared some common values like autonomy self-determination, anti-authoritarianism. And so we started building a community around those values, also very highly intelligent, open, rational, committed to reason and logic. And um, we discovered that we were just naturally heterodox, like the values that brought us together were stronger than any political label that might set us apart. So I couldn't even tell you what people's political uh, positions are anymore because we, we work so well together and collaborate so well together around these values that all of that kind of fades into the background where I don't even pay attention to it. Like I know Andrew's on the right. It doesn't mean anything to me because we're so aligned on what we're doing on this project. And we work so well together that, okay, that's just a word to me right now. And it's that like X, Y axis and the, the vertical axis of authoritarian and liberalism. And I feel like it's not so much left right anymore that it's realigned around that other axis. And our values are so similar that it, I'm not finding the political positions to be much of a barrier. I'm like David, though. I uh, classical, liberal, leftish, center, center now because of the wokeness. But before that, I was I grew up gay. I fought for gay marriage. I was like a Clinton liberal or Obama liberal until all the like Evergreen and George Floyd stuff started. And now I'm probably about where David is. And Neil, you're probably like looking, you know, over the pond, just going, who are these crazy loons anyway? So you are our first co-host that is going to bring us <laughs> a perspective outside of our, our American bubble. So give a little introduction. 
Um, well, you nailed it, Jen. That's exactly how um, I'm looking at America at the moment. Uh, <laughs> um, so I, I grew up kind of apolitical um, from a quite an anti-authoritarian background. Um, um, so sort of brought up to be very self-determined, um, despite having my both sides of my family being strong in the military and police and that sort of right up to my parents who were hippies and then it all went out the window. Um, so I've never really engaged in politics at all. I've, I've never believed in anyone's right to vote and then tell me what I should do. And I've always kind of taken that stance. Um, so I don't know if I, I would probably say I was contrarian rather than heterodox when I was younger. And then I started to travel and I lived in China for a while and I really got to see different cultures and got to reflect then I got into mental health field, but I also have a background in finance, computer programming, all sorts of, sort of different areas. Um, and then recently, as Jeff was saying, I got involved in um, critical therapy antidote, which was looking at political incursions of sort of therapeutic practice. And I got really interested in how people hold on to ideologies, which when tested against rationality don't make sense how difficult it was becoming to be able to have conversations with people that had different perspectives, which is not something I've really experienced much myself. I've always been able to converse. Um, and I've got, in the last year or so, I've really got interested in sort of the cognitive science and psychology aspect of the individual and the group and how these things play out and why maybe things are the way they are and how to make sense and meaning in, in the current climate. Um, so I still find myself relatively apolitical, um, although I have discovered that I am, I guess, essentially libertarian. I believe everyone should have their own perspective. And if I don't agree with you, that should not matter in the slightest. But what uh, intrigues me and also kind of frightens me to some degree is the current inability to engage in discourse. So I'm really interested in why that is. And is there anything we can do about that? What skills can we develop? so that conversations can occur um, and it doesn't have to resolve in everyone having the same opinion at all um, far from it it'd be a lot more colorful if we don't so that's kind of where I'm coming from um, things are not as um, maybe clear-cut in terms of left and right in the UK um, so I, I'm really I know I've learned a lot about the the political positions in the US so I understand where you guys are coming from we're I think we're all a little bit closer to center maybe or it's probably hard to tell the difference over here plus we have the opposite colors so red is left and blue is right <laughs> in the uk so that really threw me that's been like the hardest part to grasp with that um so yeah that's where i'm coming from so really all happy purple. to be here we're all purple, all purple. yeah basically david yeah purple is the color <laughs> Well, but and I think that's the point, though, too, with having like new voices is to be able to get these different perspectives and different points of view. Mm -hmm. um, we also with our guests on it. So I know you guys are going to bring some new guests and have that perspective, maybe that David and I, maybe people are getting tired of David and my perspective, are we, David? <laughs> I'm getting tired of my perspective. Not yours, but mine. <laughs> I'm just getting to know your perspective. Uh <laughs> but you know what i, I want to ask you so you guys do i you, despite what andrew said you guys all kind of came into my orbit as heterodox thinkers and i know jeff and neil you guys as you already mentioned were connected through the what is it critical therapy antidote is that 
Yeah, then we kind of spun our own community and podcast off of that called New World Chaos. New World Chaos. And it's almost identical to what Andrew was doing. We're trying to bring together the same types of people for the same purpose. And then what you were doing with the community building and that kind of stuff. So we just, just like, what's what would happen if we just merge all of that together? Yeah. It's, that's what this is an experiment for. Tell me a little bit more. I'm interested. You've mentioned this several times, Jeff. Um, tell me a little bit more about this, the, the um, group that, the CTA group that you guys are working in. Like, how did that even get, I know your background is in mental health. I'm a peer counselor. Um, so how did that evolve in the first place? I don't even, oh, I was on Twitter and some person was talking about wokeness and mental health saying how they wish there was an organization out there that addressed this. And somebody said there is, Critical Therapy Antidote. So I followed the link. I signed up. I joined. We started Zooming together. And like I said, we all discovered we had similar values. It was people from all over the world. We had UK, South Africa, Canada, from everywhere. But we were all coming together because of this, the values that we feel like we're being encroached on by the woke ideology. And out of that, um, I met Nemo, who we created the podcast together. And the value there was self-determination and anti-authoritarianism. And then we kind of brought Neil into that because he was also so strongly aligned with that. And from <laughs> that, we discovered that a community was forming through the podcast. So like the, the guests that came on our podcast would end up on the Discord and Zooming with us. And people from the Discord would come on the podcast. So it started to become this two-way street that was community building and bringing in all of these really bright, cool, creative, interesting people. And we were figuring out what to do with that. And it's it, like ILV is doing the same thing. It's bringing together all of these other member organizations that are bringing together the people within their organizations. And, and convergence is what Neil and I started calling it, where every like the things that people are working on or thinking about start to overlap with what the other people are starting to think. And so we're just following that. You know, if, if you think about it, of all the various institutions in which Woke ideology has corrupted. I can't think of one more damaging than psychotherapy because so fundamentally it is about building the resilience of the individual and the inside of the individual. And this ideology is then turning the locus of control to the system instead of the individual. That's why we are having a forum on February 22nd. Is it one or two o'clock Eastern? It's, it's two o'clock Eastern. Yep. Um, on, and, um, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. With uh, with some really great people, with great therapists and psychologists who um, who have a lot to say about this. I'm sure you do um, as well. But we we feel like this is we are doing a series now on how different institutions have been corrupted by this ideology. But we started with psychotherapy for a reason, because it seemed to me the most egregious of all the ways that you could change an institution or a, in a, or a sort of an endeavor is because and it just runs right afoul of the core ideology, the core way you do therapy. Yeah, and let me interject there for the, our, our podcast listeners who are familiar, because Jeff mentioned ILV, and onto what David's saying. So that's the Institute of Liberal Values of which David and I co-founded, and now all these, all of our friends, Jeff, Andrew, Neil, are also a part of. 
And the idea around it is classical liberal values. And what's so cool is it really does parallel the whole My Drink podcast because it's the members in our uh, the ILV organization come from all over the political spectrum, all over the demographic spectrum. And so it's to, to build on what Jeff was saying, it's this kind of community building. And so we saw this opportunity, not just within ILV, Institute of Liberal Values, but in Hold My Drink to bring that, bring that uh, you know, to our listeners as well. And what, for more clarity, what David is mentioning, ILV is, is it's going to be critical social justice in psychotherapy, February 22nd. So for anyone here who follows Hold my drink and not ILV for more information. For more information, our Twitter is at IL values. So you can find out more about that. But that is going to be really, we've talked to, David had a, um, a conversation with Valerie Tarico, who's going to be part of that conversation on February 22nd um, on, on the psychotherapy. And it was fascinating to me because one of the things that she was saying, and David, you were the one who interviewed her. So you'll be able to speak to this a little bit more, but I felt like it was so damaging because it took away, and can you clarify here how it takes away the the ideology that we're talking about and for lack of, you know, better terminology, woke ideology, took away this sense of agency within with the patients. And that's exactly what people were coming to try to find with this sense of self, the sense of agency. And yet when you were going to see a woke therapist, you got, they almost, it, it made it worse. Can you explain that a little bit more? I'm not the therapist here. Well, so you, you talked to, the therapist. to, I was like, to oh. Valerie, but you're, uh, you're right. Yeah, yeah. That's what you, yeah, that's, I mean, I'll let one of the therapists uh, expound on that, but it, really it's about, you know, um, if a woke therapist uh, comes in and they've been told, well, the, that, that, the, that the patient is a victim of the system. And they changed their therapy to try to get them to understand not how they have agency, but how they've been deprived of agency by the system and how to, to see themselves as now victims of the system. Even if you are a victim of the system to a degree, you still want to find maximum agency for every individual. And she cited Viktor Frankl, who was um, a neuroscientist and Holocaust survivor. And he wrote a book, a great book called Man's Search for Meaning. And he talks about how during the Holocaust, he, he met people who just collapsed mentally and felt that they had no agency and, um, and others who, who refused to give up, who still brought meaning to life even under the most extraordinary circumstances. And those people fared much better. They survived more. Obviously, they were still victims of the, of the Nazis, even whether they survived or died. But it just, that's the most extreme example. And even under the most extreme example, you can find a role for individual agency, for the locus of control to be with the individual. And I think that's what woke ideology tries to take away. But maybe one of the therapists could, uh, could add something there. I was going to say, um, I think it's a really good point, David. It's a fantastic book as well. Um, so the very definition of suffering is not pain as we normally think of suffering, but it means to, to lack agency. So you can suffer from joy if you are not in control of your response to a joyful situation. So suffering is to lack agency. Um, and um, in Buddhism, suffering is the root of of. Uh, it's it's the, the aspect of life which which causes uh, uh, all sorts all sorts of uh, terrible things to happen is it is essentially lack of agency. So what's happening in 
a standard therapeutic practice is you're helping a person establish to what degree they can be uh, responsible, responsible in their life, how they can respond to the things that have happened. Because obviously external things, external events occur. Uh, you don't necessarily have control over external events. What you do have control over to a growing degree is how you can respond to those. And happiness essentially comes from an increase in agency, regardless of the difficulty of the circumstances you find yourself in. And um, that's essentially been the purpose of therapy in the, for the past 150 years. And then you come, what's happening with woke ideology is to, to as David said, you, know, you, you it, it inject the victim mentality, you take away agency, and then the suffering actually increases. Um, the less control you feel you have in your world, um, the more uh, you will suffer in terms of your just day-to-day -day experience. Um, and the, what seems to be the purpose behind that is to um, get people to side with a political ideology to change political structure. And that's got nothing to do with individual mental health. So uh, it's very cleverly been brought into that this ideology is very cleverly been brought into the therapeutic practices um, by saying by, by highlighting the fact that people um, are victims of certain external circumstances and therefore if you could only just change the whole world then no one would end up being a victim which obviously that's that's, that's ridiculous as a concept um, but even if you were able to change the whole world, if you didn't have agency in it, even in a, a utopian situation, you'd still suffer. So the internal locus of control that agency brings is the source of happiness and the external locus of control, which is what is being encouraged to believe in, you're a victim of the world, the world's got control over you, um, is just going to bring unhappiness. And along with that unhappiness brings often things such as depression and very sort of negative health impacts but can bring uh, a willingness to burn everything to the ground and, and uh, become a, a soldier of the ideology so I think that's quite possibly what their motivation might be is to to get people on board to destroy the system that's causing them their suffering but it's it'll be a failed endeavor we've seen the uh, a very similar thing or really an identical thing the uh the praxis of social justice applied to uh, social emotional learning, SEL, because the argument goes like, how can you learn to regulate your emotions if we don't account for the fact that we're living in this racist, patriarchal, sexist, transphobic system? We have to change the system and teach people how to, everything has to be about the system. And unfortunately, the, the unintended side effect seems to be that you're bringing all of your individual goals of educating kids, teaching people to regulate their emotions, providing people therapy and helping them find their autonomy, all of that becomes subservient to the political agenda. But that's yeah. what it seems like to me. But. Right. You know, if you think about this, imagine how devastating this is for minority communities. And I think that's why there are so many motivated black heterodox thinkers, uh, if you will, um, on uh, uh, activists, because they realize that their own kids are being told that the system is rigged against them. And if that's what they come to believe, they're going to have a much harder time 
figuring out how to make it in a society, even if the system is rigged against them at times or in certain contexts. So I think um, well, I think that's what one of the things that I think we've got to harp on more in making the case is that it's just whether you believe it, it's true or not, and it may be true in certain circumstances and not in other circumstances, or partially true, um, the, the, the whole focus of the locus of control on the external is bad for society and hurts the individual. I think that's something we don't stress enough sometimes when we critique this ideology. You know, I've got an issue that just kind of recently came up on my radar since we're all just kind of riffing here. Um, and, and, and it touches on this though. It, it actually came out of uh, the Washington Free Beacon, David. So I don't know if our friend Aaron Sibarium wrote it or was a part of it, but it was this new, uh, not a movement, but initiative. That's what the word I want to use. A new initiative to give people, um, you know, in the drug communities access to pipes and stuff like that. And of course, the idea was, you know, that it was safer and whatnot. Um, but the initiative gave money specifically to underrepresented drug users. And to me, that was, I mean, that's creating a system of an underclass and, and, and specifically targeting people who, you know, who they are assuming are part of those communities, you know, uh, black drug users, brown drug users. And I don't know, I need, Jeff, I know I'm kind of going a lot all over the place here, but these, th I think we're creating a system so much larger than the psychotherapy world, where we are actually creating a system that will victimize <laughs> and continues to victimize. Um, what are y'all's thoughts on that? Well, what's their argument, that the current system is doing that? I guess they're... they're it's not like no, no, Andrew. ...projective identification, but I'm glad y'all are starting with psychotherapy because that's like the battleground for individual values because that's where the individual shows up the most, that they're like most vulnerable and raw. And so that's where those values are going to be fought over the strongest. And education's another one when they're young and developing. So I, I think psychotherapy is a good lens or microcosm to like look at the entire set of liberal values and how they work on an individual level and interpersonal level. Um, I was just going to go ahead, Andrew, please. Oh, I, I was just going to say, I, I forget who exactly do it, is doing the program that you were talking about, Jen. Mm -hmm. I believe it's HHS or like a subpart of yeah, HHS. But yeah. the, the idea is that they'll, um, that they can save lives by making, by instead of trying to discourage people from doing drugs, making the people who are doing drugs safer while doing so. Right. So in theory, if you prioritize, um, if you prioritize minorities, or um, statistically underprivileged people, and the program works, then you might be saving their lives. But if you're wrong, and if you incentivize more people to do it, then, you know, and obviously that's a whole policy discussion for another time. But yeah, they, they are really confident this program works. And uh, I, as the resident right winger, I don't have that confidence in the government to, uh, to, to fix drug problems with crack pipes, but hey, you know, I appreciate some optimism in the world, I suppose. I'm not sure I, I mean, I'd like to see it tried. Um, you know, not not that I believe, I don't believe anything necessarily will work just because somebody thinks it's a good argument. 
But, yeah. um, you know, it's not like the war on drugs has worked very well in society. Yes. And um, and so if, 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 if someone has a good idea and wants to try out giving crack pipes to crack addicts and see if that makes them less likely to do drugs or ruin their lives or if there are other ways of sort of, you know, um, managing our drug problems, I'm, I'm all for experimentation there. But David, wouldn't you, why wouldn't we put that money towards prevention versus, you know, create, you know, safe, safe, safe addictions? Why not put the money towards prevention versus safe addiction? And let me just add one thing, because I don't I really, both. well, okay, have we done I mean, a lot of work I, on the I prevention? I think I worry that some of the critique of this can be philosophical. In other words, we're saying that, um, that, we don't like the idea of safe addiction and so therefore we're not going to push it but you know look we have some serious problems i mean you go through large parts of this country there's just rampant opioid addiction and and the like you see major cities with these gigantic open air drug camps and homeless areas in san francisco and the like you know i i'm I, i'm all for seeing what can be done to wean ourselves off of our drug problem. I don't think outlawing all these drugs and then filling our prisons with the people who have uh, yeah. addiction is working very well. So, you know, again, I'm all for trying uh, preventative measures too, but let's let it all let all hang out and see, throw everything against the wall and see what works. That's what I say. Yeah, I think I brought a good up a example really from Europe, if I can. Yeah, because I think I brought up something maybe that's too big that we'll have to take on at another time. But give your example from from Europe. Okay, so um, Portugal in on the west coast of Europe is a relatively poor country for Western Europe. I had a very bad drug problem about two decades ago. Had the highest levels of heroin addiction in Europe. Um, so they decided that they would try to destigmatize the use of drugs. So they, their aim was um, to uh, allow people to be able to, to talk about their problems and come forward and get support. So they had a public campaign to destigmatize drug use and provide um, appropriate support services. So that would be both the provision of clean materials, making drug use safe, as well as preventative measures. So it does include both. Um, but the main goal was destigmatization. And, and after 15 years, they went from the highest to the lowest drug addiction problem in the whole of Europe. So it's been a highly successful program. They've done similar things on, as a side note um, with criminal behavior where they've had um, crim low level criminals and not too serious crimes, um, but spend one day a week in the community so that they were practicing re-acclimatizing. It's been very successful. So conceptually that could work although it doesn't sound like they're trying to deal with stigma it sounds like they're just they're trying to uh, in the case of what you're speaking about in the us it doesn't sound like it's trying to destigmatize drug use which i think is the actually effective measure shown in you in portugal um it sounds like they're just trying to make it safe and which i don't think is an effective policy and then by um highlighting a specific group of people that they're going to help first or pri or primarily um <clears throat> actually that feels to me like it even deepens the stigma um so let's uh, let's just say that um uh, 
that English people in America were, were some kind of like uh, um, group that's worthy of more help than others, you know. Um, so we say, put now, oh, not only are you a drug addict, but you're also English. Like, you know, that's like a, a double mark against you. So we're going to help you first. I don't think that's going to make me feel particularly good about myself. Um, so I'm very curious as to whether I, I my fear would be that by specifying specific groups needing more help than others, you're actually going to send the message that they are, have even less agency, which kind of brings right. us back. That's what they start. want. Well, I've worked Quite in possibly. that system and the dependency they create, they go out of their way to create just blew my mind for somebody that was in there to try to help them develop agency. I think it's that maternalism or like that toxic maternalism or paternalism like with the nanny state they want that dependency because they know best for that person so they want to have the control over how that person recovers or develops can you elaborate because uh, you're in this field and, and that's how i got started was talking about the psychotherapy but can you and an and agency can you elaborate on what you've actually seen that gives you that impression well, what one thing they're big on and it's not a bad thing in and of itself. It's called wraparound, but it's it's everything's collectivized. So I can tell you as an employee and the clients themselves, if they need to do the most simple thing, they need a team of five or six people to help them do that one thing. As an employee, same thing. Like I wanted to send an email one day to set up a meeting with an outside vendor. Half the office got involved in trying to help me send this email. It took two days to get this email out. I could have just done it myself, one person, locus of control, or me doing the email. So like, it's like if they see someone too independent, they'll try to reduce their capacity or their productivity and collectivize it so that everybody else has some kind of role in it. And they do this with the clients too. Like they, There's kind of this ethos that the clients can't, do anything on their own or navigate their, the system on their own without this team helping them to get through. And I don't know, I just find it very, me as a peer trying to help them develop and nurture their own self-autonomy, I felt like I was swimming upstream, even with my own coworkers, even with, with the own like kind of working philosophy around the office. I was somehow standing out by doing that. One job, the crisis center I work at, they told me I was setting too high of standards for the other coworkers and they couldn't meet or work up to the standards that I was using with the class. So I'm like, well, I, that's the standard I work at. I can't help. I'm not going to lower the work I do or the quality of work I do just because you're working at a different standard. How does that help the patient? But that's the kind of the mentality they foster is to, to flatten and collectivize everything where everybody's dependent on everybody else to get one little thing done we need to, and bureaucracy we need to get... when you attach bureaucracy to that it it just it, it's so off the chain at that point and no no one person can now it's just a tangle and whoever's controlling the, the bureaucracy to the extent that you internalize that as an authority or an expert then you get tangled in that the podcast because you'd be the perfect oh, yeah. person michael I, I i think he's amazing um, and I think that's that's exactly the person I was thinking about um, as well for this. And, you know, he looks so deeply into these problems and unflinchingly diagnoses them different from the, um, you know, the conventional wisdom. You know, he's talking about homelessness in places like San Francisco, and they've been told it's a housing shortage for all these times. And you find out that all these people are flocking to California to take advantage of their very generous uh 
their generous uh, benefit package and monthly wage, and then they're um, they're able to maintain their drug habit. Um, and and the other thing that he talks about that I think is critical is that um, that progressive thought progressive thought that de that uh, institutionalizing people for mental health disorders was a very um, coercive thing, and they deinstitutionalized all these people who are now on the streets, and they're all keeping them on the streets until the government will give them housing for free. So I think he's he's really onto something. How broken that system is, and how we have to, uh, and and what he argues for, what he says, all the best practices show is actually giving the people who are homeless some sense of agency. Like they have to do certain things. I used to work. They, they get a, a home credit. Used to work. I used to work in mental inpatient mental health, and I've seen people come, like there's a reason they're in there, and there's things we can do to give them a better chance of success on the outside. So, like just saying you don't need to be in there or stigmatizing that, it, they have a purpose and a function. I also worked in that crisis center, and it was mostly it was like if you're homeless. Instead of going to the ER or jail, you have the option to come to this crisis center. We stabilize you, and then we're supposed to hook you up with resources and kind of start you on a path to out of homelessness at that point. They didn't. They would just send them right back on the streets. So it was a revolving door. We would see the same people over and over. And I, I kept, like, I could see all of the ways we could actually be helping these people to develop independence and agency on their own so they could start taking steps to get out of this. But the whole system didn't support that. They supported this revolving door model where we stabilized them and just sent them right back out. And I actually got fired because I kept trying to go up the chain to tell people like what we could be doing better. And that's how much resistance there was to this. So, you know, here in Austin, and this drives me batty because this really shouldn't be political. I, I totally understand the um, the maternal. I'm the only female now in this group, that, that maternal um, wanting to care for people. I get that. Uh, at the same time, creating a, you know, that, that creating a victim, and it always seems either or, right? But it could be like you were just saying, Jeff, it can be both. And so in Austin, there's this great group. It was started Mobile Loaves and Fishes. They call it Community First. And it is a homeless camp. It's little houses, you know, but in order to live there, and there's they allow within reason, I mean, they're not there policing like drugs or something, you know, so there's not no door knocks, but they, um, you, they allow this autonomy, but you have to be a part of the community. So even if you are, you have some kind of disability that might not allow you to work a nine to five job, there are other ways that they allow you to be a part of this community. And so I get so frustrated when I hear politicians talk about like this either or like either give them the crack pipe or take it all away and put everyone in jail it's like why aren't we have why aren't we being creative in in these solutions not, that's it they're not they're out there though the solutions it's are the out leadership. there it's not create they have the wrong people in leadership because they're not creative they're not imaginative and they're beholden to politicians funding bureaucracy so part of it is that and on Neil and I's podcast, I've talked about this over and over, that victim triangle where you have the victim, the rescuer, and the perpetrator. And so mm -hmm. when I say dependence, it's that they create the victim mentality where they get to be the rescuer. So they get the power that come, and then they have to cast somebody as the perpetrator, which is whatever the boogeyman of the weak, white, straight, whatever is oppressing you. 
And I don't think that's healthy. The healthy version of the triangle is instead of a victim, you have someone suffering. Instead of the perpetrator, you have someone that's assertive. And instead of the rescuer, you have someone who cares. And that's like the healthy version. But they don't, they don't, that's not the dynamic that they establish. They establish the unhealthy version. So it perpetuates itself. Like the whole system is almost built around it. Not even at the client level, but the employee and the coworker and management level too. So would you say, I keep hearing you say the word system. And we talk a lot about like, is there really systemic racism or yeah, systemic this, that, or the other? But I'm interested. I mean, there does seem to be a system. I mean, who? But who runs that system? Who's that boogeyman? You know, I mean, well, who's, who's the? You say they. Who's the they? It's kind of federal. Trickles down to state. The state tries their best or to to implement federal, but also to somehow take advantage or capitalize on federal at the same time. And then so you have the state that implements to the county, and then all of the public agencies. And this is the public health system. So private. I don't know much about. So like in the cases I'm talking about, it's the individual directors of the agency, but they're tied into this larger network of people that work under the state and the politicians. So it it's that system. It's like the, the, the state federal bureaucratic network and, and the people. In and specific, you're talking about public health. Yeah. yeah. And and this is here in Washington state, which is highly bureaucratic. So it may be different in other states, but it's very tightly controlled, micromanaged and top down here. So they have the opportunities to like not only to implement like whatever comes from the higher level, but to put their own spin on it. Like they, if you know how to work the bureaucracy, you can work it to your advantage. It sounds like we need to get Mike Schellenberg. Yeah, on this absolutely. Show. I, I seem to remember, I haven't seen enough from him, but I seem to remember him talking a lot about carrots and sticks, um, which, uh, which really appeals to me um, in, in trying to look at it more from like incentives, um, from an autonomy point of view, or be increasing people's autonomy, because um, that, that seems like something, and, and I haven't fully formulated my thoughts on this, but it, it seems a lot of times like we look at the, the people in the country almost as if they don't have agent, you, you know, in a terrible story when people don't have any sort of like, they don't seem to have their own character. You know what I mean? They, they're, they're poorly written. They don't seem to have their own agenda. They just kind of like follow along with the story and we don't know why they're there or we, we don't know what they want. And so they end up being an unappealing character. It kind of seems like sometimes um, government programs look at people as if they aren't quite people and they don't mean to do so per se, but in this way that doesn't take into account that, that autonomy is valuable. And if you, if you take that away from people, like if you're always there with a safety net, um, you know, at a certain point, like why, why bother getting out? You know, um, it's, uh, I, I don't have the data to back this up, but my, my argument goes along the lines of it's very easy for a safety net to become a hammock. Well, Nemo, Unless, that oh, are, unless you take a more comprehensive approach, which seems to be what, what Schellenberger talks about. Nemo, our partner from New York Chaos, put together these this set of infographics in this little YouTube video explaining just that and how there's different types of people at different levels of autonomy or self-development. And these programs are – if you don't match the person you're serving with the right program, you're going to create unhealthy dependencies. And the further up the chart you move to the healthier programs – 
those are the ones that are centered more on individual autonomy and helping the person. But those are not the ones that are set up at the bottom at the safety net level. And yeah. And it's on my Twitter. It's pinned to my Twitter feed if anybody wants to take a look. Yeah, no, I'll include a link for in our podcast podcast blog on that. So I think about that all the time. I think he put it together very nicely, that framework for thinking about that. We're not just talking about one system or one population or one we're talking about kind of a, a layer of different populations with different needs and different systems that fit those needs. All right. I'm here it is like uh it's kind of a description of codependency as well. Um so th- in terms of um, sort of state-funded, particularly healthcare and medical models, um, they are they have a budget, and in order to have that budget reinstated in the following year, they need to spend it. Mm-hmm. So there is a dependency to spend. Um, um, there's a, a rather sort of jokey adage that um, you know, first day at medical school is that uh, a patient cured is a customer lost, um, and there isn't an element of that could be playing out particularly in relation to budget and then there does sound like a codependency relationship between um clients and providers uh, service providers um so i see that in in what you guys are describing um and then i think about the sort of social aspect of these types of programs and and i i start to push that over towards socialism as a concept and and i think i had this chat with andrew the other day and i was saying about um the the unit of measure in socialism is the group so the individual is only a partial measure at best or may not be considered at all so individual values just get aggregated well if they're measured at all they're just aggregated into a group right so this is this is common for this um the common theme throughout the the application of woke ideology is group identity um, as being the as it being the lowest number or, or the lowest common denominator that's used. Um, so, if that mentality of applied to groups um, on through a sort of codependent system uh, where there is a requirement for for budget justification um, um, it, within medical healthcare, then you don't get a system that helps individuals um, you get a system that supports the existence of groups groups which justify the existence of the system in itself and there's that that sort of unhealthy codependency how that plays out mm-hmm. and that doesn't need to be um, malicious it doesn't need it could actually be coming from a very benevolent intent um, which is where I think the energy of the nurture can can become toxic. Mm-hmm. So I say can become as in, I don't think it's inherently toxic, but I think it can play out in that way. Um, so I think what I don't know the person that you guys have been referring to um, that that you really? said should be talking about this. Okay, um, <laughs> but I'm assuming that they would have a very different view on how these entire structures should function and and what their purpose might be. But if you really wanted to resolve homelessness which I don't say is even possible, but you know, greatly reduce it, you would be looking at each individual's needs and finding ways to give them agency so that they are not dependent. You want to eradicate as much dependency as possible apart from <clears> dependency <throat> on self. Um, 
And that would be a very, very different approach. And ultimately, in the end of it, you wouldn't need the function to be delivered in at all. So you would your goal would be as the department would be to make yourself um, not needed. Absolutely. And yeah, I don't think that seems to that seems yeah. to be a common problem through all forms of governance. You yeah. know? But it's power. Yeah. When you get power, your goals change, your values change. So a society built around individual values, and this is why this is probably where I get this very strong urge towards individual sovereignty is for me, the healthy community is one where everyone is a sovereign individual who chooses to interact with each other um, with integrity and kindness and challenge um, and the option to opt out whenever one wishes to. Um, but that requires individual sovereignty as a basis. So that's why I think individual sovereignty is the root of healthy community. Uh, and any, anything that measures you as a group um, eradicates you as an individual. Okay, so you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bookmark this for another conversation because at some point with, we just said something, we have to talk about the move, the sovereign citizens, and probably Andrew can talk, might even be, talk, be able to talk about me. in America. Well, only, not because you're a sovereign citizen, but I, you I'm know, I, I didn't think you were. Just to <laughs> just be clear, clarifying. just to be clear. But um, with you and your military background, you know, there are a lot of people who who have been in those circles that seem to overlap with sovereign citizens. And maybe I'm totally wrong about that. But there seems to be a lot of people who now claim sovereign citizens have a, that kind of military or whatever background. Would I be wrong? Maybe that's their discussion for the next time. Um, there, there might be a little, I, I feel like the military tends more conservative, especially for yeah. government employees. Um, they tend more conservative. If you, if you put a military base in a certain town, um, like it, it, it makes the whole area just a little bit more red. So like, if you go to Hawaii, um, the military is like kind of more Republican than everyone else. So I think there's like a couple Republican representatives from that area. And then the other like 100 are all Democrats. Um, and well, and sovereign, the idea of sovereign citizen isn't even really a concern. I mean, if, if anything, if it's even political at all, it's it's more libertarian, but it's, it's kind of a funny movement that we'll talk about at another time, but it's, it's, it's libertarian off the rails, right? You know, because there has to be some, again, balance between how the state functions and being able to function at all, which- And the more autonomous you get, the less you need a state, like the less you need the state to function. Like people that are more self-actualized and developed, they can govern themselves in a different way that maybe requires less of that in different political structures. So to make assumptions that we all need the state in the same way or the same type of state or amount of state too, I would challenge. Yeah. All right, that'll be so a, a conversation. In the, in the UK, we are officially... Uh, if you go to like, there's only four laws in the UK, really, everything else is legislation. So the laws in the UK, like really, really old stuff, like the Magna Carta and the Bill of Rights and Petition of Rights and Habeas Corpus, um, basically says that every, every citizen of the UK is a sovereign citizen, as in the meaning of king or queen, that level of sovereignty, mm -hmm. and that you have full access to all things in the land um, and, until God shows up and says otherwise so that's kind of how it's actually written because it was 
I don't know, like it's like 800 years old or 900 years. So they've genuinely believed in God showing up and changing the law. And until that point, it can't be changed. Everything else is legislation. And what most English people don't realise is that you don't have to consent to any of it. Um, which I regularly don't. I regularly do not consent to any of the legislation in the UK, unless I think it's actually really appropriate and helpful, in which case I'm quite happy to consent to and participate. Um, so there is a there is a consent level of participation within sovereignty, which I find very healthy because as, a, as a, most human beings will consent to everything that is actually decent. I, I, I actually fundamentally believe in the decency of people. So, you know, I would, I, I would, I don't need to be coerced into not murdering or, and, and not stealing and other things because they're just not activities that I would in, choose to engage in anyway, and nor would most people. So it's the degree, I, I'm interested in what Jeff was saying there about the degree of state and the degree of sovereignty. And as I agree, I agree Jen, I think if you just eradicate the state, especially from where we currently are, you'd have hell, like an anarchy and, and it'd just be nightmarish. <clears throat> but maybe over a progressive path over time, you could reduce the role of the state. And, and that would be a really interesting conversation. Yeah. yeah. We won't go there now because that's a bit No, I'll, I'll leave it there for, for now. But this uh, example of kind of, you know, there was, this was the part of our introduction and we didn't really plan, you know, what we were going to talk about, but this was fun. And so I'm looking forward to more of this and, and more of seeing who you guys bring on to carry on these types of heterodox andrew heterodox you're going to be heterodox <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll, we'll see you don't or have at least to be unorthodox yeah or, or, unorthodox is okay too yeah we're I, cool with I, unorthodox you're unorthodox. i, I prefer to i prefer to tell myself that tell everybody that i'm a i'm a, just a regular conservative and then uh and then surprise them if i don't stick to the stocking the talking points well i like i like <laughs> your um tag like you're a conservative who married a liberal <laughs> yeah i'd uh michelle malkin and james carville yeah it's, it's the ultimate breaking out of your echo chamber <laughs> yeah it is it is well that's the point all right um i will well you're uh, good people we're, yeah that's and that's that's really the point right all right, y'all. So I look forward to many more of these conversations, a few roundtables, a few new guests. And yeah, Thanks until until next time. Thank you, Jen. Thank you. Cheers, y'all. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Yeah. Cheers. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hold My Drink. Like or subscribe to the show and check out the show notes for links to source material and to our website where you can find what each of us is reading every week different news with different views. If you have a topic that you would like us to explore, drop us a line. And join us next week as we say, hold my drink, and the conversation gets real. <laughs>